Good to be here this morning. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I was here at your church a number of years ago when you were still meeting at the school. And I uh, remember that. have good memories of that time. I had uh, an enjoyable lunch with Pastor Jathan before he went on sabbatical and uh, kind of catching up on things, but uh, enjoyed that time. And I commend you for giving him and providing, making an opportunity for him to have a sabbatical. I pastored in Indianapolis for 24 years, and I had a sabbatical in my 20th year. <laughs> but now they have a policy in place where it's a regular, consistent thing for the pastors who are there, and I'm glad we have that. And I, I think that's so important to have a break and have a time like that to get away, and I pray that he will come back refreshed, and I feel sure that, that he will. Appreciate the worship time this morning, too, but this is worship as well. As we look into the Word, John Piper calls it worshipful exposition. I think it's important that we see teaching and opening the Word in that way, and, but it's just a, a real privilege to be here today. You know, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It was in the early 1970s when I first read those words from A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Tozer went on to say that the most revealing fact about any person is not what that person may say or do, but what that person in his heart and mind understands God to be like. And if his statement is true, and I believe it is, then the crucial question then becomes, you know, how do we arrive at a correct view of God? How do we know if we're right and correct in what we're thinking about him? In Tozer's classic book, he helped me to see that an attribute of God is what God has revealed to be true about himself. It's important truth. Not what we may perceive or think of with our own finite minds, but what has God revealed to be true about himself. It was really at that time, and that's been 50 years ago, um, that I began to read God's word with one question foremost in my mind, namely, you know, what does this passage teach me about God? What has he revealed in his word to be true about himself? And this brings me to the focal point for today and to a certain extent for next Sunday as well. For our focus for the next two Lord's Day will be on the profound and potent and compelling Hebrew word hesed. You can say it different ways. Um, It's an encouraging attribute of God, often translated as loving kindness, mercy, goodness, or steadfast love. The truth of the matter, however, is that no one word comes close to even capturing the full scope of the meaning of that rich Hebrew word. I appreciated the insight of a Messianic Jewish pastor by the name of Howard Silverman, who commented that hesed is not so much a word to be defined as it is a truth to be described. More precisely, hesed is an attribute of God. It's what he has revealed to be true about himself. And in the self-description of his gracious character, hesed refers to, and here's part of the description, God's unconditional, relentless, extravagant, unfailing grace and love for his people, a love that endures forever. God's hesed is completely undeserved and corresponds closely with the word grace, in the New Testament, the Greek word charis. Interestingly, hesed is found in the Old Testament 246 times, with at least three-fourths of those referring to the hesed that God has for his people, for his covenant people. 
Um, I taught a Sunday school class on it earlier this year, winter quarter, January, February, and March. And uh, I spoke a couple of times on it, three times actually at Living Word Fellowship back in June and early July. And so I am so captured and enamored by this that I wanted to share that with you today and again then next week. Um, one Bible encyclopedia said that hesed is the most important theological word in the Old Testament. And as a result of my study to this point, you know, I see why they make that statement. But Exodus 34, which is the astounding passage before us today, is one of the mountain peaks in Scripture in terms of God's revelation of himself, God's revelation of his attributes and of his character. It really becomes a, a historical marker to which God's people would return again and again. In fact, the Psalm 145 that was just read earlier had a, pa- a portion of that was from Exodus 34, and that's common out throughout the Old Testament. So I'd like you to turn with me, and you do have an outline in your bulletin. Uh, Pastor Jathan asked me if I would send outlines over for, for today and for next week, and it, it's a skeleton, but it contains quite a, quite a bit there. But Exodus 34, 1 through 10 uh, is the passage we're going to read today, and I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. I'll explain a little more in a minute why I'm doing that. It was put together in conjunction with the New American Standard, which I typically use, but Um, If you're able to stand, I'd like you to stand with me as I read these. Exodus 34, 1 through 10. Now Yahweh said to Moses, carry out for yourself, carve out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones. And I will write on the tablets the words that which were on the former tablets which you shattered. So he prepared by morning and to come up to the mountain uh, in 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 the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me on top of the mountain. And no man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of the mountain. So he carved out two stone tablets like the former ones. Which Mo- and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as Yahweh had commanded him. And he took the two stone tablets in his hand. Then Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood, be- stood there with him. And he called upon the name of Yahweh. Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the ground and worship. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though they are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your own inheritance. Then God said, behold, I am going to cut a covenant before all your people. I will do wondrous deeds which have not been created uh, in all the earth, nor among any of the nations, and all the people among whom you live will see the working of Yahweh, for it is a fearful thing that I am going to do with you. You may be seated. Now, as you see uh, in your outline, I've mentioned here that the passage easily divides itself into four interrelated movements, and you can see them there in your outline. The first part is what I'm calling Yahweh's gracious summons. And I refer to, to it as a gracious summons for several reasons. 
and all related to the context. And so let's look at that first. Israel is no more than just a few weeks removed from the deliverance from Egypt where God miraculously parted the Red Sea, as we know, enabling them to pass through on dry land, and then having the waters return to destroy Pharaoh and his army. And even though his people had already become complaining of what would become a pattern for them, sadly, God was faithfully fulfilling his promises. He was meeting their every need. And on the third month after they had gone out of Egypt, we read in Exodus 19, Moses went up to God and Yahweh called to him from the mountain. On his first of two extended trips to Mount Sinai, 40 days and 40 nights in length, God gave Moses his moral law in the Ten Commandments. We read in Exodus 31, 18, these words, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. Amazing words. Meanwhile, you know, down in the valley, the people had grown impatient as Moses delayed on the mountain. They shamefully then asked Aaron to make them another God who would go before them. A blatant violation, interestingly, of the first two commands on the tablets that Moses held in his hands. We know the appalling account of how Aaron, Moses' older brother, and the first priest of Israel, asked the people, and hear the words, tear off all the gold of the rings that were in the ears of their wives, their sons, and their daughters. And God's word explains then how Moses, uh, or how Aaron, rather, fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a golden calf, which the people began to worship. And in doing so, of course, they turned their backs on the loving and faithful God who had delivered them from 400 years of bondage and slavery and who had made incredible promises to them about their future, the land, and all the things that he would do for them. Well, back on Mount Sinai, however, <laughs> Yahweh, as Proverbs 15:3 says, whose eyes behold the evil and the good, said to Moses, go down at once for your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. You know, as an aside, there's some interesting exchanges there in the Old Testament between the Lord and Moses about whose people they were. Are they God's people or are they Moses' people? It's an interesting exchange. You'll see that on more than one occasion. As Moses made his way back down the mountain, as soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf, he saw the dancing, and Moses' anger burned. And he threw the tablets that were in his hand and he shattered them at the foot of the mountain. And then he took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. You see that in Exodus 32, 19 and 20. Moses then confronted his brother Aaron who shamefully sought to minimize his role in it, confessing only a part of what he had done, much like we do at times. And, uh, and here's what his explanation was to his brother. He said, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off, bring them to me. So they gave it to me. I threw them into the fire and out came this calf. And we just read that he had fashioned it very carefully, but he said, well, it just happened. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Well, many of us have likely been the same way in seeking to minimize and justify our own actions. But the sad, and you can read about it in Exodus, the sad, just consequence was that 3,000 men were slaughtered that day with the sword. 
Moses then turns to the Lord in prayer, pleading for forgiveness. This is one of several times. It's an interesting, interesting study in and of itself how Moses is a mediator. He intercedes for the people on more than one occasion. Uh, Yahweh explains that he will punish them for their sins, but that Moses should go back and guide the people, saying, my angel will go before you. Interesting. That's a word that did not satisfy Moses, for he needed to be assured that not an angel, but that God himself would accompany them, that he would go with them. Now, the first part of today's passage, verses 1 through 5, as I've said, is Yahweh's gracious summons. And one reason it's gracious is because it directly follows this disgraceful incident of the golden calf, one of the lowest moments, really, in the history of the nation of Israel. And what's so amazing is that God is about to reveal his gracious heart to Moses. It's against the backdrop, though, of this shameful incident of the golden calf. And here God is about to open his heart in the passage that we just read, to reveal to them some amazing things about who his attributes and who he really is in his character. It's a definitive revelation that would be life transforming for Moses, for the nation of Israel, highly instructive for all of us in grasping the eternal goodness of God's character. Now it's also a gracious summons in that Yahweh is again going to inscribe the moral law, uh, the 10 commandments on two new tablets. Interestingly, on this occasion, Moses is instructed to carve out, and this is in verse 1, carve out two stone, two stone tablets, and I will write on them the words of the former ones you shattered. When we examine the earlier chapters, it seems clear that Yahweh himself provided the first tablets. No record that Moses was instructed to do that. On this occasion, Moses is instructed to carve out tablets. And God says, on the former ones you shattered. This time, um, he's the one, he's bringing them. And I find it interesting, and others find it interesting as I study this, as Moses made his way back up the mountains in obedience to God's gracious summons, he would, he would have walked right by the very place where the former tablets were shattered. And they were there somewhere in the dust, covered over, I don't know where they were, but he would have walked right by that very place where that took place. But it was also a gracious summons in that Moses was again given a, pri a private summons. No one was to come with him, and you probably picked up on it as I read. No livestock could even graze on the side of the mountain. What grace the Lord Yahweh showed to his servant Moses. We know earlier that Abraham was referred to as the friend of God an intimate relationship, wonderful compliment that he was referred to in that way. But the Lord and Moses had a wonderful relationship like that as well. In fact, 30, chapter 33, verse 11, it says, and the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just like a man speaks to his friend. Wonderful relationship that he had with the Lord. But now we come to the very heart of the passage here before us. Yahweh's definitive Revelation. It's not an exhaustive revelation, but it is a definitive, powerful revelation of his character. Note in verse 6, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called on the name of the Lord. The Lord had guided Moses and his people through a cloud in leading them out of Egypt. 
And he shielded them from Pharaoh's army with a cloud as well. He also appeared in a cloud during the first giving of the law when Moses was there for the earlier 40 days and 40 nights. And here he appears to Moses in a cloud, likely as a protective cover to keep Moses from being consumed by just the sheer glory of God. Interestingly, in the previous chapter, Moses had asked to see God's glory, but instead of of showing him his glory in a full sense, the Lord gave Moses this astonishingly, astonishingly definitive description of his attributes, revealing his name, his nature, and the very depths of his gracious heart. And he begins with his covenant name, Yahweh, Yahweh God. Now Moses had first learned this sacred covenant name of the Lord at the burning bush when he was also told by God that he was chosen to be the one to lead his people out of Egypt after their 400 years of bondage. And you may remember that in his excuses, Moses had asked, my people may ask me about the name of this God who sent you. So what shall I say? Whom shall I send me to be the deliverer? And God said to Moses, as you probably remember, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you, has sent me to you. Now, most translations render the name Lord, uh, but the Legacy Standard Bible, which I read this morning, uses the word Yahweh, um, the name by which God wanted himself to be known. You might be surprised to know that this name, Yahweh, is found in the Old Testament 6,800 times. Um, that says something about just God's character, how he wants himself to be known, a very prominent name. Here in Exodus 34, however, is the only occasion where he repeats it twice. And so his appearance says, Yahweh, Yahweh God. That's how he begins. The name describes, now think about this with me, the self-existence, the self-sufficiency of God, conveying that he is one with no beginning and no ending, he is unchanging. He is forever the same. He is autonomous, not dependent on anyone or anything, but everyone and everything that has come into being owes its existence to him, as John 1 tells us. He is the one who was, who is, and who forever will be. Now, it's important to understand that any time God reveals his name in Scripture, it refers more to just, just a title. It's more than that. It conveys a description of his eternal character, and that's what we see here in this instance. So after beginning, Yahweh, Yahweh God, he proceeds then to give Moses an even fuller meaning of his sacred name, who he was, is, and always will be. In terms of his character, what follows are several of his attributes, as I said earlier. Attributes are truths that God has revealed to be accurate in terms of who he is, what he's revealed to be true about himself. What we will see, and I hope, I hope you can see this as this perhaps stimulates you to some study on your own, is that this passage is one of the most significant and influential passages in, in that it's quoted or referred to dozens of times throughout the Old Testament. They kept returning to that. We'll see that some next week. But the second thing he says, after Yahweh, Yahweh God, is compassionate and gracious. If you know this section of Moses, you may recall that in the previous chapter, 
the Lord had already revealed the truth of his sovereign compassion and grace to Moses, even as he was soon to reveal this fuller and more definitive revelation of himself. In the previous chapter, he says, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord to you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. Now that Moses is back on Mount Sinai, after declaring that he is Yahweh, Yahweh God, his next revelation is this. He is compassionate and gracious. There's a softness, there's a tenderness in this Hebrew word for compassion, corresponding to words that describe the heart of a mother toward a newborn child. Michael Card, who has an excellent book, a well-researched book that points you back to the word, God's word, on this, he says that though Yahweh has not yet revealed himself as father, the first word used by him in this intimate disclosure to Moses is a parental word. Compassionate is a tender word expressing God's heart toward those who are in distress, especially those who are suffering because of their sin. It's interesting in Psalm 103, a favorite psalm to many people, a psalm that highlights Hesed a number of times. David highlights this tenderness also in parental terms where he says this, just as a father has compassion on his children, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. This is where Yahweh begins his description. Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious. The word for gracious used by the Lord in further amplifying his compassion means to be favorably inclined toward someone such as Noah, for example, who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Yahweh is full of fervent passion toward those whom he has chosen in his sovereign grace. Stephen Lawson describes this compassionate grace of Yahweh by pointing out, and I quote, the graciousness of God toward sinners is his condescending mercy that reaches down into the pit where we once lived in order to rescue us. I really like that because one of the first passages that this came alive to me as a new Christian when I was 16 years old, was Psalm 40, where the psalmist says, he brought me up out of a pit of destruction, out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. And so Yahweh does this. He, he is compassionate and gracious toward us as he reveals to Moses that he wants them to know that he's compassionate and gracious. Then he moves on to say, slow to anger. That's not to say that Yahweh does not become angry because Psalm 711 says he is angry with the wicked every day. But being slow to anger is an expression of his patient mercy in that there is a delay in exercising his divine wrath in order that sinners may have additional time to repent. In the New Testament, for example, when the Apostle Peter is explaining uh, to those who questioned this issue of the Lord's coming and explaining why he delayed in that, he said, the Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some count consider slowness, but he's patient towards you, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. So Yahweh is not forgetful, and he will never condone sin, And at the time of his choosing, he will act decisively against us, as we know. But he reveals here that he is slow to anger. 
slow to unleash his fury against those who are under his divine wrath. But in the day of wrath, that will surely come. This truth is linked to Yahweh's revelation that he's compassionate and gracious, as he just said. And because he's compassionate and gracious, he then is slow to anger. That's the reason why, one reason why. Scripture bears this out from the Garden of Eden onward, doesn't it? That God is slow to anger. Um, after pronouncing his judgment on Adam and Eve as they stood before him in their shame and guilt, as an expression of his compassion and grace, God took the skins of animals and clothed them. Yes, he's slow to anger, and I, for one, am thankful that he is. Are you not? That he's slow to anger. But then... The next point is he is abounding in hesed, or loving kindness, as it probably has in your reference there. It's the first reference to hesed, first of two references in the self-revelation of God. He is abounding in hesed and truth. As Messianic Jewish pastor Howard Silverman points out, he said that the hesed of Yahweh encompasses all the benevolent traits and actions he takes toward his created world, but in particular toward those with whom he is in a covenant relationship. The early Puritans um, referred to God's goodness as what they called a captain attribute. Interesting phrase. I'd not seen that before until I began to study this. Goodness as his captain attribute. And they saw Hesed as an expression of God's goodness. And that resonated with me for a number of reasons, just based on my own study. One is that when Moses prayed in the previous chapter, chapter 33, show me your glory, Yahweh had said in response, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. Beautiful phrase. Another reason is the way it's used in Psalm 136, right after the one we read this morning here. Uh, but which has this statement about Hesed in every verse. It gives a, it enumerates a number of things that God does, but after each one it says, His Hesed endures forever. His Hesed endures forever. You may sing the song here, forever. Sing, give thanks to the Lord our God and King. His love endures forever. It comes out of that psalm. But the MacArthur Study Bible, well, what I was going to say there about that psalm is that that psalm opens by saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And his hesed endures forever. So it hints there at this captain attribute of the goodness of God. Hesed is an expression of that. Now the MacArthur Study Bible takes a different yet complementary approach by saying the Hebrew word hesed found nearly 250 times in the Old Testament refers to God's gracious love. But it's a, compre it's a comprehensive term. Uh, that encompasses his love, his grace, mercy, goodness, forgiveness, truth, compassion, and faithfulness. That may seem confusing unless we remember that what we're seeking to describe, and I hope you see this this morning, that what I'm seeking to describe is not an abstract concept. I'm seeking to describe God's heart. <laughs> and I'll be honest with you. Uh, I mean, why not? <laughs> Call to be honest, right? But in my study of this, back when I was teaching this during winter quarter and in preparing again, you know, to speak on it in this form, um, again and again, the thought crossed my mind as if an enemy was whispering in my ear, who do you think you are in attempting to describe the gracious, eternal heart of God? 
Who do you think you are to try to do that? Well, I could have given up and chosen not to attempt to teach my class or even be here today to describe God's eternal hesed with my simple, clumsy words. But here's what encouraged me and kept me going. I'm not the one who's describing God's heart. All I'm seeking to do is shine a light on what God said about himself, what he revealed to be true about himself. His revealed word must always be, of course, our primary focus. And here he has graciously chosen to reveal about himself. His revealed word must be this focus. And here we have in these two verses, he is dramatically and definitively stating to Moses and to all who read his words, not only that he is the God of Hesed, but he's abounding in it. He's abounding in Hesed. The Hebrew word abounding means Yahweh's covenant love is beyond measure. It's of endless supply. It's much. It's enormous. It's abundant, indicating that his character is overflowing and abounding with hesed. You know, if you're ever involved in starting a church sometime, that not, might not be a bad word to use, you know, if you're starting a church, abounding something, you know, like abounding grace <laughs> or abounding hesed, because it's what God re- revealed to be true about himself. So how could we not love the name of this church body? But note that Yahweh declares in this phrase that he's abounding in hesed and in truth. This word truth, the Hebrew word emet, appears more often than any other in, a, in conjunction or in association with hesed. In fact, 51 times you see hesed and truth, those two words together. Um, it's a wide-ranging word that can be translated truth, true, reliable, dependable, faithful, faithfulness, and trustworthy. The more we understand about this important connection and remember that Yahweh is describing his eternal loving heart, the more we will appreciate, and I'm, I'm jumping on ahead hundreds of years now for just a moment, the more we will appreciate the Apostle John's description of Jesus in his incarnation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, and the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory like that of the only begotten of the Father. Now, what else, John? Full of Hesed and Emmet, full of grace, full of truth. Even as Yahweh revealed to Moses in Exodus 34 that he is abounding, eternally abounding in Hesed and Emmet, in grace and truth, in the fullness of time when he revealed himself in Jesus not in spoken form, not in written form, but through the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. God in his incarnation, humbling himself to come in human flesh as Emmanuel, as God with us, dwelling among us, our Lord Jesus described in John 1.14, the identical way and exactly the same way that Yahweh revealed himself to Moses on the mountain, that he is abounding in hesed and in truth. Yahweh and the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, are, as we know, one in essence. Jesus would later describe that in John 10.30. I and my Father are one. Not just one in the sense of kind of a, we feel united, but it's really literally one in essence. This is who we are, God in human flesh. So Yahweh is abounding in grace and truth, and his grace and truth were perfectly embodied in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why... I'm saying this is not an abstract concept. This is the heart of God which became personified and came in human flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
There's a lot more I'd love to point out about the connection between those two words, hesed and emmet, or grace and truth. Let me give you just one example that I absolutely love. I got too many places I love, I guess, but Psalm 115 begins this way. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness and your truth, because of your hesed and your emmet. In other words, because you are just what he revealed himself to be here in Exodus 34, you must receive the glory. Not to us, Lord, but you must receive the glory. But then the next phrase, he keeps hesed for thousands. Yahweh continues in his second use of hesed to say that he keeps hesed for thousands, conveying the truth that his heart is and always will be one of hesed toward his children. He always remains steadfast in his hesed love and grace generation after generation to, the peop- to his people at all times and in all cultures. So after saying first that he's abounding in hesed, meaning that his loyal covenant love is beyond measure and of endless supply, here he says, he says that he keeps hesed for thousands, meaning that he preserves, he maintains, he focuses on hesed all throughout all generations of his people, and it's eternal. His hesed endures forever, so this is the heart of God and who he is. And this truth is reinforced even more by its recurring frame in worship. His hesed endures forever. We've seen that. The fact that hesed is used twice in Yahweh's definitive revelation gives us the sense that this is an essential, indispensable attribute further reinforced by it being, as I said, found in the Old Testament 246 times, three-fourths of those having to do with God's heart, hesed toward his people. My Old Testament professor, who was much broader than any theological position, Dr. Dennis Kinlaw, an esteemed Hebrew scholar, says this, the praise of God in the Bible is rooted in his hesed. When we know that this is who God is, we cannot help but praise him and worship him. But then... The next thing he says, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. So here God's revelation of his heart becomes even more encouraging. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Those three, these three Hebrew words can cover a full range of sins. The first one, translated iniquity, has to do more with guilt. The second one, transgression, has to do more with breaking away in a sense of becoming like a rebel. The third is the most common word for sin, and it's used more than 500 times in the Old Testament. And it connotes missing the mark. Essentially the same as the common Greek word in the New Testament. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've missed the mark. We may vary if we compare ourselves with one another. But we come woefully short as we compare ourselves to the holiness of God. We're totally unable then because of that to save ourselves. But Yahweh's compassionate, gracious and heartfelt revelation that is that he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And this too is incredible news, is it not? The word or the phrase to forgive in the Hebrew means to lift up and carry away. So God takes our sins and places them, as we know, upon a substitute, as was seen in the Old Testament at Passover, as innocent lambs were slain by thousands upon thousands, each one pointing to the future Lamb of God, who John the Baptist said, would take away the sin of the world. He would lift it up. He would carry it away through a once and for all perfect sacrifice. So what astounding, encouraging attributes God has revealed to be true about himself. 
And after such a positive revelation of himself here, this might be a good place to stop. Well, let's just stop here. The news is just so good. Let's stop there. But God didn't stop there because he goes on to say, and he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. The full sentence, as I read it earlier, is, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Now, we'll see an example of this in our passage for next week, but it's important to remember the truth of Scripture where God says in both Deuteronomy 24:16 and Ezekiel 18, fathers are not to be put to death for the sins of their children and children are not to be put to death for the sins of their fathers. Each person will be put to death for their own sins. So in the ultimate sense, each person has individual accountability before the Lord for his or her own sin. But even so, and you know this very well, parents who sin against the Lord leave a bitter and difficult legacy for the generations that follow. And we'll see an example of this next week. But everyone here today is likely aware of someone who is suffering consequences because of the sins of their parents. It's a sad and sorrowful reality in our world. But what we see here is that after revealing his compassion, his grace, his tender mercy, his abounding hesed, and truth, his total forgiveness to Moses after revealing those to Moses, Yahweh now reveals his justice. His character is one of holy love. So the question is, how can the same God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin also give punishment? In the perfection of his righteous character, God must punish sin. But how can we reconcile God's justice with everything we've just seen him reveal about himself here in Exodus 34. It all seems confusing until we understand how God worked it out perfectly on the cross. It was there that Jesus, the word of God, made flesh, made perfect atonement for our sins. Just listen to these words. If you want to look at them, you may, in Romans 3. As to how God did this, Romans 3, 21 through 26. Just listen to these words. As to how God, being all those great truths that he revealed about himself, but then being just, how did he take care of that in, in solving our problem? But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as an atoning sacrifice in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in God's merciful restraint, he let the sins previously committed go unpunished. For the demonstration, that is, of, the right, of his righteousness at the present time. Now, get the, here's the phrase I'm going for. So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The God of eternal hesed and grace is just in punishing sin, just as he said he would be. But in his eternal hesed, this holy and just punishment for sin, was placed on his beloved son. He himself is the one who mercifully justifies those who have faith in Jesus 
because of his sovereign, abounding, hesed, and grace. So Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross, which we will remember in the Lord's table in just a few moments, the supreme, is the supreme expression of God's hesed. But he perfectly satisfied Yahweh's justice. While he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, we don't have to bear that punishment for our own sin. As Paul says so beautifully in Romans again, but God proved his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So what happened on the cross is a simultaneous expression of God's love, of God's mercy and grace, while also being a perfect expression of his holy, righteous justice. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, but he punished sin through his son in a gracious yet just expression of his eternal essence. Now, very quickly, as we wrap this up, it's a lot to think about, I know, but you can read about it later. We see in verses 8 and 9, Moses' humble response. And Moses made haste to bow low to the earth to worship. I would think so. You may recall that when God initially appeared to Moses and called him at the burning bush, and he turned aside to see why the bush was not burned, God said to him, do not come near Remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground. That was in his initial call to Moses. But on this occasion, some years later, Moses needed no instructions as to how to respond. His response to Yahweh's gracious and definitive self-disclosure was one of instantaneous contrite worship, immediately making haste to bow low to the earth in worship. Moses' humble, spontaneous response shows us, and I've seen a number of people say it this way, that our theology, as our theology becomes greater and greater, our doxology will become greater as well. The more we understand accurately who God has revealed himself to be, the greater ought to be our praise and our worship of him. Interestingly, just kind of an aside, you remember the Apostle John in the book of Revelation when he saw the Lord and the revelation of Jesus Christ? What was his response? Exactly as Moses here in Exodus 34. He fell at his feet like he was a dead man. You know, the more I contemplate, contemplate that moment of being before him, I simply cannot imagine any other posture or response than to do exactly what Moses and what John did later to make haste to bow low to the earth and worship and fall at his feet like a dead man. One thing is certain about that moment, and I love John R. W. Spott's comment about this. No one who enters into the Lord's presence will be strutting like a peacock. That's for sure. We will be humbled on our face before the Lord, just as Moses was here and as John was in Revelation. Now, note Moses' words, humble words of response. If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst. Even though we are stiff-necked people, pardon our iniquity and our sin, take us as your inheritance. This issue of God going with them and not merely sending an angel meant everything to Moses. You remember in 33, Exodus 33, he had said, if your presence, Lord, does not go with us, then do not lead us up from here. Is it not by your going with us, I and your people, that we may be distinguished from all the other people on the face of the earth? So his first request was for God's presence to go with them. His second 
was to be assured of God's pardon. Pardon our iniquity and our sin. And in this request, Moses knew he was praying in harmony with what Yahweh just revealed, that he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. So he knew he was praying in harmony. But his third request is to take them as, in, as his, his inheritance, and it was for a renewal of the covenant symbolized by those two tablets that Moses had shattered, the moral law of God. He wanted to know that God was renewing that covenant. Finally, in the fourth point, Yahweh's reassuring reaffirmation, verse 10. Actually, the rest of the chapter is his affirmation. You'll have to read that on your own or we'd be here a long, long time. But God said, behold, I'm going to cut a covenant before all your people. I will do wondrous deeds, which have not been created in all the earth nor among all the nations and all the people among whom you live will see the outworking or see the working of Yahweh for it's a fearful thing I'm going to do for you. So this was his initial answer, assuring him that he would renew the covenant But in Moses' mind was now in doubt because he had shattered the previous tablets. But look at this amazing promise that he gives to Moses. Before all your people, I will do wondrous deeds which have not been created in all the earth nor among any of the nations. If you read to the end of chapter 34, he repeats some other commandments, gives some additional ones, but it concludes with him giving and writing actually on those two tablets that Moses brought with him this time, renewing the covenant, reestablishing the moral law there that he had established. You know, this truth of God's chesed, and I'll wrap this up here, but, um, and his unconditional commitment to his chosen people is a truth that's really captured my heart over the last year or so. I've read a few books and I've read numerous articles about chesed all of them really pointing me back to God's word, which is what we where we want to be. Um, but one of the helpful articles that I read, most helpful, at least there's a phrase there that just grabbed me, was from Ligonier Ministries, R.C. Sproul's ministry that he's now, of course, with the Lord. But Pastor Terry L. Johnson wrote these words. Now just listen as we wrap this up. He said, our articulation of God's attributes should always be exercised with humility. Well, shouldn't they? However much we may have voiced, there is always more to be said. The finite cannot know the infinite comprehensively or exhaustively, yet we can know God truly. We can speak where the Bible speaks as it reveals a God who is both love and just the monument to which we have at Calvary. I love those words and I identify with them. And I'm thankful that we can know God, aren't you? Uh, some of you here may not know the Lord just yet in a personal way. I give you these words of the Lord through Jeremiah when he said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with Hesed, I have drawn you to myself. Came to know the Lord at 16, but he was drawing me. I look back, I was responding to a call. Ecclesia called out once. We're responding to a call and he draws us to himself. How wonderful that is. Jesus said, this is eternal life that we might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. But for those of us who are blessed to know the Lord through his sovereign, gracious call, what is the rest of our life meant to be? Is it not meant to be wanting to know him more? I love the words in Hosea where he says, Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him and he will respond to us as surely as the coming of dawn.
and like the rain in early spring. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you this morning, we thank you that you are Yahweh, Yahweh God. Thank you that you are compassionate and gracious. Thank you that you are slow to anger. Thank you that you are abounding in Hesed and in truth. Thank you that you keep Hesed for thousands and that you forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. But thank you as well that you are a God of perfect, holy justice and that you will will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. But thank you as part of your eternal sovereign plan that the only true, holy, righteous, just one, the Lord Jesus Christ, died for us, sinful, unjust people, to bring us to you and into your presence where we might glorify you and enjoy you forever. The truth that we'll remember again this morning as we come to your table, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.